It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Welcome to that geeky Christian couple from Boise, Idaho. This is Adam Graham. And uh, we are trying this out. This is a pilot, and uh, we'll see if uh, what what we produce if it's uh, interesting enough. And uh, we'll uh, use what uh, we uh, like and don't use what doesn't work uh, again. So uh, let's go ahead and we'll start with uh, introductions. Um, since Andrea is eating some lovely Christmas candy, I'll go ahead and introduce myself. Um, my name is Adam Graham, um, and I uh, really uh, grew up a lot on um, science fiction. Um, my dad didn't let me watch horror movies, but he did uh, rent a movie where uh, aliens uh, kidnapped uh, people. And I actually spent several months um, staying up late at night thinking I was seeing UFOs. So, thanks, Dad. Um, but now that I've gotten that trauma out of the way, um, I've gone ahead really gotten very much into superhero uh, stories. I've written five superhero comedy novels, edited ably by uh, my lovely wife, Andrea. Like um, a lot of the uh, uh, Star Trek, Doctor Who, uh, and Star Wars. Not huge into Star Wars um, in terms of expanded universe and things like that other than the audio dramas which have been uh, pretty good so that's me and now i'm going to go ahead and i'll introduce my wife uh andrea andrea is an editor and an author she's written the web surfer series which is being uh, published by helping hands press and she is a uh, valuable um, help to me in terms of editing and making sure that my books are in something resembling readable english and she's a fan of a lot of different uh, science fiction uh, fantasy stuff she likes uh, star trek and doctor who and in uh, no particular order. And you can check out her websites, ChristGlory.com and POVBootCamp.com. All right, well, since this is just after Christmas, we're going to go ahead and talk about the science fiction-related uh, uh, presents that we got. And I got quite a few. Andrea asked for some more uh, practical things, but I tend to... I make lists tend to look at opportunities for getting um, expensive books. So we have, first of all, the Doctor Who version of Yahtzee. Um, Woohoo! Yeah, it's, it's actually a really neat looking thing. Uh, when I went online, I was surprised to see they have got Doctor Who versions of a lot of games. There's a Doctor Who Monopoly. There's a Doctor Who uh, version of Clue. Uh, yeah. And uh, of, this is the same with a lot of sci-fi franchises. Um, 
I've got uh, the other thing I got. I'm kind of very excited about. I put on my list that I wanted uh, Fail State Nemesis, the ebook version. But uh, Andrea, she went out and she got me the paperback version of uh, Fail State uh, Nemesis, the last in John Audie's uh, very good uh, science fiction series. Uh, so I am looking forward to reading that. Yes, it's a signed copy, um, and we're we're still not sure how it ended up that way, um, but uh, we're glad that it it's a it was a very good purchase. Another one Andrea got me was the uh, Marvel Masterworks Golden Age Omnibus Volume Five. Uh, this is from the Marvel uh, Mystery Comics um, back in the nineteen forties. Uh, the name of the company that actually made most of the Marvel comics that were in, that are in existence, such as Captain America and the Submariner, was actually Timely. And Marvel Comics was one of their publications. Um, and so it was a big anthology book, a lot of heroes in it. And I've been looking forward to getting this one because this has the historic meeting bet uh, between Submariner and... And the original Human Torch, which makes it the very first superhero team-up uh, comic book story where they actually teamed up. They did have an issue where they fought one another. Um, but uh, Submariner, of course, very interesting. And I think the whole Golden Age era of Marvel Comics is vastly underrated. Um, then we have The Blood of Azrael. Um, this is the um, last of the 11th Doctor comic book collections from Doctor Who magazine. And, uh... Are you sure it was Azrael? A-Z-R-E... I would have pronounced it Azrael myself. Azrael, Azrael, perhaps. Um, no, I'm biased by the name of a guy I went to high school with. Could be. So, I'm... Azrael, Azrael, I'm not certain, but A-Z-R-A-E-L. It's kind of hard when it's a written comic book. You don't actually hear it pronounced. Um, and so now I've got all of them. I still have more to read, so now my stockpile is complete. Uh, and then we have two volumes of Superman Sundays. Um, I also host the old-time radio Superman show. And um, Superman, more, probably more people read him in newspapers than read him in comic books uh, at the time. And uh, th these collections, the Golden Age Sundays from 1946 to 1949, and then the Atomic Age Sundays, 1949 to 53. And uh, there's another uh, collection coming out, and they're putting out all of the uh, Superman strips. And I think they're great uh, to read. A lot of comedy, a lot of fun. Um, I really love the era of the newspaper strips of uh, Superman and Batman. So that is what I've got in my pile. Uh, Andrea, could you tell us about what you've got? Well, the two pre Christmas presents that my husband surprised me with was Star Wars Princess Leia and a, the 2015 Jim and the Holograms, which I'm kind of um, 
kind of the jury's out on whether this will be actually any good because I heard the movie it's bombed. The, the Jim and the Holograms movie was pulled from theaters after only two weeks. Yeah, I mean, it was pulled before you even knew it was out. Yeah, I was like, it was out? <laughs> and that was the big um, science fiction for girls it back in the It may be a nice, interesting contrast with the newest Star Wars, though, because, because in, the, in episodes one through three, because Jim and the Holograms is trying to update the story and bring it into the modern times and for the modern audience whereas Star Wars has returned to its roots and telling the original story even though they're still bringing in elements that play better to a modern audience but they're they've gone back to more to the roots and trying to bring cap recapture what really happened in those first the episodes four through six yeah yeah um i think that uh i don't know how i'm hoping jim and the holograms will be good it's just something i bought knowing that you like that series so i give As no a little girl yes um but that that's why they're making so many of these things because the fandoms do continue on into adulthood as for princess leia i think you will enjoy that that's by mark wade um and i read these in the individual issue form um on my uh tablet and i figured you would like it um he does a really good job with princess leia so um i hope that you uh enjoy that so that is the uh, unveiling of our uh, sci-fi-related Christmas presents. Now we'll go into talking about Star Wars, which you started out uh, to already do. And it was kind of, it was like, with Star Wars, you know, if, to me it felt like it was the same but different, you know. We start out with a droid um, all on his own, needing to get information to the um, uh, resistance on a desert planet, um, running into, in this case, the heroine of the story. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it did feel a little derivative, but there, there were all these little new twists in here that I think really uh, made it work. Oh, it was horribly derivative. It was also awesome. <laughs> it's like, seriously, this is the, probably the most derivative movie of the year, and it's going to make lots and lots of money because they did it really, really well. They gave the fans what they wanted. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, I think that, that that's true, that, uh, you know, it, it really is just producing a story that people will care about, and you give people... Um, uh, a heroine they like you give them uh you know a great story that works because i mean in reality most most movies are borrowing their plot ideas i mean they're just basic plots that get reused over and over again and uh, I, I think that they managed to work things in really well plus i like you know i liked everybody they brought back and the way it worked out in our theater is every time they brought on a classic, you know, you know, one of the original characters, they had, you know, they got an ovation. 
And I think that was by design just to make sure that they all got their moment. Plus, it really just does show how much people, um, uh, how much people like those uh, characters. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, now, I, what what did you think of? So, what did you think of Ray? She was awesome. Yeah, I I thought it, she really um she really worked well. Um, I mean, it, it was interesting because she was very different <coughs> than Luke in that she really does start off. You know, really having some experience having fended for herself. And they leave really with a lot of um, mystery um, about her. But still, they give you enough of an idea of who she is that you do, uh, that you do end up caring about her a lot. Yeah, I hate the modern female heroine who is extremely derivative while trying in the effort to assert that you know woman power she is riding on the coattails of a male who she has displaced and she couldn't get into this it implies she couldn't get into this position on her own merit she had to basically steal the thunder from a guy and that's and it's just derivative it's not standing on her own feet not her own person you don't have that with Ray. She's we don't know yet who she's related to. If if they're gonna stick with their derivative thing, she's going to end up being related to either Luke or Hans one. But she's whoever she you know, wherever she's going to fit within the Skywalker family, she's not trying to be Han Solo, she's not trying to be Leia, she's not trying to be Luke, she's just Ray. Yeah, I, and I think that whole being out there on that outpost, um, I, I guess we should say spoiler warning. I don't think we've dropped anything yet. Uh, literally a guy in a, squeezed into a woman's body either. I've heard of some talk of wanting to do that to Dr. Who. It's like, no, we don't need, as a woman, I don't need a guy in a woman's body. I don't need a girl riding on a guy another some guy other guy's coattails give me a heroine who is her own person who is has her own thing she's not trying to who's not in any way riding on the guy to get to where she is yeah i i can yeah that's I, she definitely fulfills that and of course, the actress who played her, pretty much an unknown, and I think that was probably a lot like Mark Hamill uh, back in uh, Star Wars. And I do kind of like the fact that we leave the theater not quite sure what's ahead and what's next. It doesn't. This doesn't work as well as a standalone as um, Episode uh, 4 did. But even after uh, episode four, there were a lot of questions. The Death Star had been uh, destroyed. See, that's the one we're spoiling. Um, and there was plenty of room for a sequel. I think all of my life, um, 
uh, in terms of anything I remember, because I was three when Return of the Jedi came out. All the facts have been known, and so it's kind of exciting that we're in a trilogy where only the writers actually know what's going on. And so we, we kind of get that sense of mystery that people who were um, alive um, before us uh, got to experience. When I was a little girl, I binge-watched all three of them in the same day, actually. And I'm, I think I may have actually saw them in order. Yeah, I saw Return of the Jedi first, so um, for me it was all spoilered. And I, though I still, still enjoyed uh, Star Wars. Uh, Kylo Ren, I did not like him as a villain. I, I think that was probably the weak spot. Um, I mean, he was a Darth Vader wannabe. He was not trying to be his own Kylo Ren. He was trying to be Darth Vader. That was a mistake, especially in the villain. It makes him look horribly weak. Not to mention the other issues that were going on that his motives were not properly explained. So again, some people could just come to the conclusion he's just weak. Well, that, that kind of does. I mean, he does he does get beaten down by um, an ex-stormtrooper and uh, a girl who hadn't picked up a lightsaber before that single uh, day. And, you know, I think that Ray is awesome does play a role in it, but Kylo, but Kylo Ren is uh, not so awesome, I think does uh, really play a uh, role in it. I think he's going to end up being related to Ryan. That's going to be the explanation for his like hesitancy to like hurt her in battle, because that's basically the only thing that really explains how she beat the out of him. And he's way better trained than she is. Is that he is remember in Blake and Leia's first episode they were really drawn to each other without really knowing why they later realized they were twins and that's actually too realistic <clears throat> that sometimes when you have um, a brother and sister that were not raised together and they do and before they find out that they when are related they can actually fall in love romantically because <clears throat> when you grow up together there's this thing that clicks on your brain that tells you not to be attracted to this person. When you were not raised with that person, you don't. Ha you, that does not happen. Yeah, I I suppose that's possible. Though right now I'm just and leaning towards so, Kylo Ren's a wimp. So he's so he's no. They were very going for he's there. The subtle um, body language is that. He has a thing for her of some sort, that especially with the Force, he feels some sort of connection to her. He has some psycho for whatever psychological reason he hesitates to hit her hard. Well, I think that may be explored. The one thing I did find it's also the um, the whole spoiler thing. He seems to kind of hesitate to hit hard, except when he does. In order, but even then, it's for very weak psychological reasons. He's trying to prove something. Strong, strong villains and strong heroes 
don't feel the need to prove something to somebody. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that the, the thing about Kylo Ren too, there's one thing I think that what does have the... Um, it makes me basically, to make this character interesting to me, you're going to need him to come over to the light side and have to spend a lot of time trying to prove himself in the good way of, I've changed, I'm ready to put this behind me, and I'm still having to deal with the consequences of my stupidity. Well, the, the thing with Kylo Ren... Is as a villain, he's just not working... The thing with Kylo Ren, and, and there is that one uh, scene in there that I think is um, so uh, that that's so different about him, and, and I think different from Vader is that he senses that he senses the light side and he's trying to fight against it, which is different from Vader, who just basically believed that there was. Uh, no hope for him. And so you do have a character who is actively choosing evil, which I think is, is very uh, disturbing. It's not as if he is torn and trying to choose good. It's he's torn and he's trying to choose evil and he'll do anything to be able to choose uh, evil. And given that, it's just it's amazing that he doesn't work better as a character. I, ju I think they just haven't partly explored his internal psyche enough. For instance, maybe he's been convinced that the dark side's not really the evil side. We don't know yet his whole story and why he's chosen the First Order. Maybe in his, um, maybe it's somewhere in his under his at some point been convinced that the dark the good is evil and evil is good that's the only way that would make sense because no one ever actively ch struggles to choose the good the evil they're they're always struggling doing it, it generally is the way where everyone's doing right in their own eyes it's just people have very different ideas of what is good that's usually the way it works in this world and that's it's really horrible characterization if they do it any other way really now um how let's talk about some of the returning characters what did uh, you think of how han solo uh, aged in this film oh about as much as the harris of ford had in real life what well i mean how he's uh you know, how the character changed from, like, the 20s and 30s, 30-year-old 30 to the much uh, older, more older Han. I don't know if I would say more mature, but how do you think, how do you think the way that character was handled? Well, his, re Han's reaction is, the first thing that struck me about his character is that Han's reaction to his son going to the dark side was just basically the same reaction Peter had to Christ getting crucified. Let's go fishing. He's going back to smuggling. Because Yeah, because smuggling is um, what, he, what, he, what he really knows. And it's, it is, it's kind of interesting because there's this sort of um, uh, 
battle, I think, in Han between the smuggler and the hero. I mean, you know, they had even one scene where um, I think Finn and Ray were discussing... um, uh, we're dis- we're discussing uh, Han, and he said, you- "You've heard of Han Solo, you know the great, uh, he- you know the great hero. Oh no, no uh, the Han Solo, the great smuggler. Um, I mean, in one way, it's it's kind of you know, there's that tension where he's gone back to it, and there is this sense, you know. Again, we did warn you, we warned you, spoilers, that even you know in that scene where they were fighting over the monster with the people they sold him to, that sense that he was hit, hit was running out of time, that of all the people he had ticked off and all the games he had played. So it was kind of this last hurrah throughout. Uh, I'm getting too old for this. There was a definite um, sense of, I'm getting too old for this. I'm not as quick on the feet as I used to be. I'm not going to be able to play this run game forever. And I can't regenerate, so. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, there's this, you know, weariness that works its way through. And I think Harrison Ford does a good job. I do understand why we didn't actually get Luke in the film. I think this was Han's uh, final film. They wanted that, you know, of all the classic characters, for him to be the focus. Okay. I still think Luke should have gotten one blasted line. We spend a whole movie looking for him. We don't even get to hear him say one blasted thing. Yeah, that was that. That was um, unfortunate because it would have been nice for um, Luke to have some lines. But I guess on the bright side, uh, they did save some money by uh, probably getting Mark Hamill to pay a package price on um, this film in Episode Eight, where I assume he will have some more lines. Uh, we were actually talking with some friends at the Christmas party, and the the problem they raised, which I think was a fairly legitimate one, is one where she just stumbled down uh, the stairs and came across uh, Luke's uh, old uh, lifesaver. That was a kind of big uh, dink. Uh Did you ha- notice anything else in the film that stood out to you as anything that took you out of the movie? Not too much. Yeah, and... Uh, they just, like, for me, they seem to be going for, let's just keep going at a breakneck face, not slow down enough for them to ask questions and really think about that, like, wait. Yeah, because they jammed a lot of plot in, and you're right, they did kind of cover things, but it's like a magician, uh, magician where your job is to keep people distracted with enough flashy things that they don't really get to uh, think about the facts of all the things that you're leaving out of the narrative. So now it's time for ratings of Star Wars. And overall, I thought it was good. Andrea is twirling around my TARDIS. And it was a fine film. Uh, As we've already discussed, it's pretty derivative, so it would be hard for me to give it extremely the highest praise, but I would give it a solid 8 out of 10. 8 lightsabers out of 10. It's a 5 star movie. At least 9 out of 10. 
Okay, so she's going to go a little easier on it. All right. So now we move on have to... You re- have you... What have you... Think about... Okay, what movies have you given a 10 to? A 5 out of 5? That would be a very exclusive group of... Those movies maybe Avengers? Maybe Avengers? Avengers? I am saying... Yes, I'm saying Avengers is better than Star Wars. Um, You're going to be talking about Avengers 20 years from now. Yes, they will. No, they won't. They will be still talking about Star Wars. I think they'll be talking about them both. But my opinion's my opinion, your opinion, your opinion. So we can move on to the next thing, which is, uh, as Andrea's holding the TARDIS Yahtzee shaker in her hands, it's the uh, Husbands of River Song. Which was, after all of the um, uh, bleakness of last series, we get a uh, we get a uh, a romantic comedy for Christmas. Um, again, as always with anything related to River Song spoilers, um, I like this uh, special. I thought that it gave a lot better treatment to River Song than she got during a lot of the Matt Smith era when she basically just became known for coming on aggressively to the doctor. Don't blink. Blink and you'll miss something and be horribly lost and confused for the rest of the episode. (laughs) Um... What did you think of uh, River in this episode? Well, she was being River Song. I kept waiting for him to find some witch slap her at some point because she was just really in the culture we live in pretty much asking to get domped. It's just like... Okay, they those two need to go to counseling. <laughs> well, it's 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 uh, a very um, it, it's a very uh, interesting thing. I, I I did find the idea that she had been stealing his TARDIS um, without telling him for years and years to be. Um, <laughs> and he, he never caught her before. That's. Apparently not, because the idea is that she is such a perfect TARDIS uh, pilot that she gets it back, like, the second after she leaves. I mean, because the fact is, you know, if you've watched a Doctor Who episode, if it disappeared for two seconds and the Doctor came back, he wouldn't necessarily know it had uh, been gone. So, it's possible, as long as she didn't leave a bunch of stuff lying around the TARDIS floor, um... (laughs) I would just expect them to have better security. I mean, they're. I mean, doesn't he? I mean, she have she has a key, but there. I would expect to be some sort. He would think of that type of thing. That that somebody a key falling into the wrong hands. Some sort of. I mean, he's how old? (laughs) I would expect him just to have some, some. uh, you know, additional security feature. Maybe you will now. Uh, the TARDIS Club, um, perhaps. 
I think when they first brought back Doctor Who, they really got into the idea of the Doctor um, being romantic with human um, females. That started a little bit in the TV movie in 96, and then definitely became a thing with Rose. And I think that um, the big problem is that a lot of the Doctor's relationship with River Song was born of that. Um, it's, I think particularly with normal humans, it's, you know, you're dealing with a 2,000 plus year old Time Lord now. Um, and, you know, a human being with a finite lifespan. So that's not really a, a measure for a good relationship, of course. Um, River is part Time Lord because she was conceived inside the TARDIS. It doesn't make any sense, but that's what the show is said. Um, and her view was that loving the Doctor was kind of like loving the star, uh, stars. And, and it, it was an intriguing episode because I think the Doctor was, you know, because she didn't recognize him throughout this. And she said things like he could come he could come in handy. And so I don't, you know, I think the doctor really didn't feel like at one point that she that she had just used him was kind of because he had found out this when she didn't recognize him. And then at the same time, we learn at the end that River doesn't think the doctor um, cares about her. So it, it was an interesting dynamic in that regard. Um, when she finally realized he was standing there. Spoilers. Yes. Well, the spoilers on everything. Um, we should do our best. Yeah. Well, I think I said spoilers for anything regarding River Song at the start. Um, what did you think of Peter Capaldi's doctor doing his um, It's Bigger on the Inside? No, it's not. I have it right here. <laughs> See? She's, uh, she's got the dice holder for the uh, TARDIS Yahtzee. Uh, talking about the TV. It looks just like it. You'd almost expect a door to come open, except I guess I don't have the TARDIS key. <laughs> but... The top comes off, and it's not bigger on the inside. Okay, well, that's because this isn't the one on the TV show. So This is a normal public police box? Yes. So this is Doctor Who Yahtzee, not ordinary police public call box Yahtzee. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, back to the TV special. What did you think about Peter Capaldi's scene where he did, where the doctor did uh, his version of It's Bigger on the Inside? Way over the top. It was like, okay, why, why is she not at all suspicious by this performance? Well, she had the like a big master list of doctors that included all the doctors but him. I don't remember if the war doctor was on it. How did she I was like, how did she find out about all those guys? Well, she probably was messing around with the TARDIS uh, database. Um and, he had, and it had a big list of all of me. 
We had had it himself to it yet. Why does he need a big list of all of these versions of me? <laughs> Pro um that's a good question. Well, it's also possible she may have traveled through space. She could have borrowed some from the unit archive. She's had a lot, according to the episode, she's had 200 episodes, 200 years on her, on her hands. But apparently she hasn't begun dumping information and unable to remember anything, unlike certain characters who got long life last season. But I digress. Um, but at uh, any rate, um, I, I, I really... Uh, liked it. It was it was just a lot. It was just a pretty fun episode. Uh, and w when you have Peter Capaldi's uh, doctor, the whole setup where he uh, gives the diamond to have the restaurant built, and then arrives and you know the the nearest the nearest time we have you know four years you know really does properly set up that. Date and that actually goes back to um, silence in the library, back to season four when he she described her, their his last her last meeting with the doctor and uh, I I love that whole final scene the setup and um um it's one of those things about capaldi's doctors the other two doctors were just so bubble you know that came before were just so bubbly and they you know talk about all their emotions and things and him it was a lot it's a lot more subtle and you just have to infer a bunch about what he's uh doing because he's less uh vocal and it does give him i think uh it gives him a more uh, male or i should say a more alien quality about him as well um, did you have anything that stood out to you in the episode? What do you think about the ship full of, um, homicidal psychopaths? And the whole crash and burn thing? Yeah. I was telling myself that everyone had gotten safely off the ship because I'm not, um, going to, I'm not okay with a ship full of people dying, no matter, uh, what type of people they are. Uh, I mean, yeah, I'm just not into that scene. Kind of like I'm not into really decapitated heads running around. That's just gross. Yeah, well, that's. I I think they were trying for a tame. I have this issue with um, body parts that aren't attached anymore. It's just kind of um, no, yeah. Well, and I understand that. I I thought it was a it was a pretty fun special. I know people do get on Stephen Moffat Christmas specials. I think every one of them has drawn a lot of criticism, and some of them are more justified than others. This one I I didn't think was quite as good as last Christmas, but I I still thought that it was good. It was very uh, much a charming sci-fi romantic uh, comedy. Um, It had some snow in it, and it aired on Christmas. And that makes it a Christmas special. Apparently. Well, that was about the the snowman uh, thing. And there was that town called Christmas, and it's Christmas because 
yeah. Anyway, uh, just looking at this sketch, this as it stands, I would give it uh, eight tortoises out of ten. Six or seven. Six or seven. So not quite as impressed. Okay. Well, um, there was a uh, interview in which Peter Capaldi has uh, said that he isn't sure he'll be back after next season. Um, I am not. I really hope that he does end up staying on. Um. I think he's a really good actor as the Doctor, and it almost feels like he's just gotten here, and now we're talking about, or now they're talking about him leaving. And I, I don't know. I think he, I think he would. It'd be nice to have him around for to at least five years. That would be my uh, wish. Uh, what are your thoughts, Andrea? They all have a buy and a blur. Yeah, it does feel like that. I thought that it would, you know, last longer once we caught up. Yeah, because we um, we didn't start watching till Matt Smith was the incumbent, and we went through, you know, um, uh, a bunch of episodes, and we we watched season eight on DVD. So season nine's the first series nine, I should say, series nine, because that season nine was back during the Pertwee era. I mean. Um, I think Capaldi in particular is just so good, you know, I, I get that actors tend to leave after three years. That's kind of, um, that's what Peter Davison did and that's what Patrick Troughton did. And I think a lot of the, um, uh, modern actors have kind of followed that. Um, but I was kind of hoping, particularly with Capaldi being a bit older, because I think Tennant and Smith both left when they did so that they could, you know, avoid having their whole career being defined by the Doctor. Too late. <laughs> well, so, uh, David Tennant's gone on to have some uh, very successful roles um, uh, of over in um, Broadchurch, and even though I would, n I have no interest in seeing the show. Uh, apparently, in the Jessica Jones series as a villain, I, I think that um, I, I was hoping with Capaldi, just because he was older and he had a more established um, career. You know, I'm not certain what else he would. Um, you know, be able to do in his career at this point. Um, you know, that's going to be some big role that you're going to get when you're 58 or 59 years old. It's mostly going to be, you know, I would think from this point out, pretty much supporting work and things of that sort. Um, so I, I hope he stays on um, uh, further in the series because he does a, such a good job. And I do think there are people who underrate him just because they're used to having um, a strapping young man as the doctor, which, you know, historically hasn't been the case. Um, we were look Andrea and I, we, we started, got on, because of an article, we got on to looking up the ages of the doctors. And uh, the first three doctors were between the ages of 46 to 55. And then Tom Baker came on at age 40, and, you know, that, I guess, was a youth movement. Um, 
So traditionally, older, very um, talented actors, and I, I think that Capaldi uh, certainly. I hope he's got a more a couple more seasons in him, um, because you know to paraphrase in a famous or infamous line, I don't want him to go. I love his Scottish accent. It's way better than yours. Thank you. Okay. Well, his is authentic. Yours is as fake as the day is long. Not lost. Okay, that is horrible. All right. So that finishes our project. So we'll take a look at individual items of listening and reading and we'll kind of talk and ask uh, questions and um, Andrea's got some teons so um, she can go and get that um, the sirens of time this is actually um, I actually listened to on my own it's the first big finish uh, Doctor Who audio drama and if there was a word I would use to describe it it is ambitious um it has the first three, uh, the first three doctors who big finish sign Peter Davison, Colin Baker, and Sylvester McCoy in it. So it's a multi-doctor story that uh, begins with each of the three doctors having a story of their own. They all tie together. The story, as I said, is ambitious, probably a little bit too much for a uh, first release. But it's solidly acted. The writing is fairly good, except on the first part with Sylvester McCoy, where I think there were some weak spots and some weaker performances. Plus, there were a few things on the sound design that weren't quite right. But still, I found it thoroughly entertaining, and it does stand up even after uh, 16 years. So I'll give that one 7 Tardises out of 10. Also, Whispers of Terror. This was the uh, third Big Finish uh, Doctor Who audio drama release. And it featured Colin Baker along with Perry as they uh, land at a uh, audio museum and encounter a sound creature. It's a very good plot. It's one that uh, Doctor Who audio dramas have uh, played with and as well as a BBC audiobook, Dead Air, dealing with a creature make uh, that deals in sound is a great idea for an audio production, and it's one of those stories that would be very hard to tell on video. There are some really genuinely creepy moments, as well as some debates about uh, morality, and just a great performance from Colin Baker. In later years, Baker would uh, really make his dog a bit more, more likable, and there would be a bit of a smoothing out of the rough edges with a big finish. But this one is a lot more in the style of the 1980s, uh, season 22, where there was a bit of bickering between the Sixth Doctor and Perry. But it's not overplayed here, so it doesn't get too bad. Overall, this is slightly better than uh, Sirens of Time, so I'll give Whispers of Terror an 8 out of 10. Eight Tardises out of ten, and then we have The Tick Specials, The Complete Works. Now, most people know The Tick as a cartoon series from the 1990s, and briefly as a live-action series in the early part of the 21st century. However, The Tick began in comic books and has continued uh, through the years with a publication that is incredibly irregular. And so I've been reading through uh, New England Comics Press's um, collections of Tick comics. They put out several complete works. Uh, this is The Tick Specials, The Complete Works, and I would recommend reading this 
after you've read the uh, complete Ben Edlin, the complete uh, Karma Tornado, and the uh, complete Big Blue Destiny. And before reading The Tick and Arthur. Essentially, these are specials. Um, a lot of them for Christmas, uh, but they also did do um, The Tick's Big Romantic uh, Adventure, The Tick's Summer Fun Special, The Tick's Back to Two uh, School Special, and as well as a summer annual. And uh, most of these actually were pretty fun. You basically have less problems because there's, uh, in the early part of the book, because there's not really an attempt to establish any sort of continuity. It's just the tick. Uh, in all the uh, craziness and wonder of his uh, world, it's just some absolutely hilarious ideas, such as the tick trying to reform a, an evil alien overlord who is crashed on the planet by giving him a nice Christmas. Or the tick uh, battling evil pumpkin creatures at Halloween. Now, there are some uh, issues with the story later on because they tried to form um, continuity uh, in 2000 with the tick's big 2000 uh, year 2000 spectacle the tick's big tax time terror the mother's day special the father's days uh special the massive summer double spectacle and the tick's big cruise pick cruise ship vacation special all essentially forming a single uh, plot arc and there are some problems and some stuff in the plot arc that doesn't work but there's still some fun ideas too such as the kid tick um and uh, a revisit to a uh, country founded by admirers of uh, former U.S. President Martin Van Buren. So overall, there's a lot of excitement and a lot of fun in this book. I would give it a solid um, eight spoons out of ten. And then finally, or second to finally, we have Batman Strange Apparitions. Uh, Strange Apparitions is basically a collection of stories written by Steve Englehart, who's best known for writing for Marvel, but he came over to DC um, for a year ahead of going to Europe to give up writing comic books forever. Forever turned to be about turned out to be about three years. But during his year on DC, he had a run on Detective Comics. And it was actually a pretty good run, uh, even though it only lasted a few months. Uh, he introduced villains such as Dr. For uh, Phosphorus and, Deadsh and uh, revitalized Deadshot, as well as telling some really interesting stories. If you uh, saw Batman the Animated Series, you'll remember a story in which Dr. Hugo Strange learned uh, of Batman's secret identity and put it up for auction among Batman's enemies. Well, this is a story right out of that book. Uh, there's also a story in which the Joker uh, poisons the water so that the fish have his face and then he tries to copyright them. That's also right from this book. There's some interesting ideas such as giving Batman a love interest who learns about his uh, secret identity. And I thought that part was interesting, but it was really just developed way too quickly in the comic books uh, just because of Englehart leaving. And the way that it's continued by Lynn Wine in uh, stories uh, that are also included from uh, 1978 
really doesn't work as well. Still, there's some pretty good Batman stories in here from the 70s. And if you like the animated uh, series, you'll love being able to see some of these uh, stories that uh, later became such great episodes of that series. So I will give this one 7 Batarangs out of 10. All right. And there was one other thing. I finished listening to the audiobook of... Uh, Nicholas Courtney's autobiography, A Soldier in Time. Nicholas Courtney, of course, was famous for playing the brigadier on Doctor Who. It was an okay uh, biography. You get a lot of basic facts about his life, and there's some very interesting things. The one thing that really surprised me is um, British actors in the 1970s were did not make near as much money as American actors. Um, uh after season eight of Doctor Who, when he spent the whole season playing the Brigadier for 26 episodes, he took had to take on part-time work as like a uh, laborer um, during the off-season of shooting for Doctor Who. And then there was another season he ended up working in a military uh, shop, um, which was quite uh, unique. And... Uh, because I just cannot imagine somebody working the whole season on a TV show and then uh, having to go and take uh, odd jobs um, to support their acting or to make sure that they did have um, any sort of income. They are the 99%. <laughs> In the whole world, yeah. Um there's, uh, there are probably, it, sh it should be say, particularly it's weird as it gets towards the end of the book, their audiobook, it tends to be, um, I got signed on to go and tour with a play on a touring company. Everybody was lovely. We had a great time and we toured all these cities and then we came home and then we went back on tour and uh, with another company, everybody was wonderful. We had a great time. And that does get a little tedious after a while. Uh, though uh, Nicholas Courtney's reading voice certainly doesn't. Um, there's, it's definitely, uh, he was someone who, uh, through, throughout his uh, life, um, is known for uh, being a Christian and attending religious uh, services. But the way it's written, it doesn't sound like it actually made uh, much of an impact on the way he lived outside of the church, which was, uh, you know, somewhat unfortunate. Still, it's a lot of showbiz history. He manages to have notes on most episodes with a little anecdote here and there for every single episode of Doctor Who he did, which, considering his time and involvement with Doctor Who goes back to the master to the Daleks master plan. That's a lot of history. So I'll give this seven chaps with wings out of ten. So Andrea, anything interesting you read recently? Not really. No. Okay. Well that's about it. Um this is the pilot. I'll probably edit out a few little gaps of silence, stuff like that, but um, it's been fun to try it out. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Uh, this is Adam Graham. And Andrea Graham. Signing off.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.